0: This is EM Pulse, bringing research and expert opinion to the bedside, with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana.
1: Welcome back to EM Pulse. Today, we are talking about treating patients with sickle cell disease in the ED.
0: This is such a broad topic that we had to break it down
1: into three separate episodes. So part one today is about pain crises or vasoocclusive episodes. Part two is a discussion with researchers about intranasal fentanyl to treat these VOEs. And part three covers other serious presentations associated with sickle cell disease. Well
0: As we all know, emergency medicine physicians play a crucial role in the immediate care and decision-making for individuals experiencing sickle cell-related complications. From pain management to addressing potential life-threatening complications, the ED is a critical setting for ensuring the best outcome for these patients.
1: So, to learn more about this, I interviewed Dr. Bimpe Adesina, an assistant professor of hematology and oncology and co director of the adult sickle cell clinical program at UC Davis, and Dr. Bryn Muma, who's a professor of emergency medicine here at UCD and leader of the research subcommittee of our DEI committee. So today, we are going to be talking about sickle cell care in the emergency department. And this is a very broad topic, so we're going to break it down a little bit. First, I want to kind of talk about that presentation that we are very familiar with in the ED when our patients come in with an acute vaso episode. And we'll talk a little bit about how we manage that and also potentially some improvements that can be made. So you are both part of a multidisciplinary team at UC Davis that's trying to improve care for our patients with sickle cell disease. Why is it so important to create this team?
2: We recognize that patients with sickle cell disease have unique needs that are really not adequately addressed by our existing workflows in the emergency department. Um, We also recognize that these patients often face stigmatization um, by our healthcare system as well as by society. And we really wanted to combat that stigmatization to make our ED a welcoming place for these patients to receive care. And as we'll talk about during this podcast, patients with sickle cell disease are at increased risk of experiencing medical emergencies because of their disease. So it's really important that they're able to come to our emergency department when necessary.
3: Yeah, I would just add that, you know, sickle cell disease, I know it's under the umbrella of hematology, but it really is a disease that covers all aspects of medicine, right? So, um, you know, it's not just, as a colleague of mine once told me, it's not just a blood disease, it's a disease of wherever the blood goes. And so for our patients, they can have complications really in any organ. And oftentimes the first point of contact whenever there is a medical emergency is the emergency room. So I do think having a multidisciplinary group to address um, the disparities in care for these patients is, Uh, critically important.
1: Yeah, I love that point about it's a disease of wherever the blood goes. When I think about sickle cell in the ED, one of the most common things we see is this acute vaso episode or what is commonly called a pain crisis. So what is the latest and best approach to patients
3: presenting with this? So I think a really excellent resource actually comes from the American College of Emergency Physicians on Managing Sickle Cell Disease uh, in the Emergency Room. So it's an excellent resource that goes through um, how you triage this patients, knowing that you know it is a medical emergency when they come to the emergency room, even if they come frequently. Because you never know when it's going to actually be a life-threatening thing that brings them to the emergency room, even if they um, represent a small fraction of patients who utilize the emergency room frequently. So you kind of have to take every uh, single presentation uh, as an emergency. And so the recommendation is to, you know, from the time they get to the door to the first administration of an analgesic to be 60 minutes. We know that this is ideal, but this is not the reality in in most places. And so uh, triaging these patients, it's almost the same thing as thinking of a patient who comes in with chest pain, right? They're kind of bumped up um, that priority list. So Going through the checklist of getting a history, I think the patients are the best uh, historian for their disease. They've lived with this their whole lives. And so they know when something is out of the ordinary. And so taking the patients at their word is, I think, one of the best ways to to piece apart. I always ask patients, is this your typical pain or is anything unusual about your symptoms? And I take them at their word. And then obviously going through what we normally do, you do a vitals, you do labs, um, the basic labs that you would obtain are a CBC with a differential and see if there's an increase in their um, neutrophil count, which can signify an infection, obviously. And then uh, reticulocyte studies are critically important. Why do we care about that? So our patients are chronically anemic. And, um, you know, it's not unusual for a patient to come in with a hemoglobin of six or seven. Because this is a, a severe hemolytic anemia, patients have to have a robust reticulocytosis to compensate for that anemia. So if you see a patient in the emergency room, Pediatric or adult who comes in with a relative reticulocytopenia, that's actually critically important because that means they cannot compensate uh, for their brisk hemolysis. Um, And so the usual things that you all do, you know, assess them for fever, acute changes in their vitals, acute changes in their labs compared to their baseline, imaging if warranted, acute chest syndrome is a significant medical emergency in our patient population, Um, And then, like I said, um, time from presentation to opioid analgesic ideally should be within 60 minutes, be very judicious with fluids and whatever possible to follow their uh, individualized pain plan. We carefully come up with these plans because this is what works for the patients. You know, I think at UC Davis, the plan is followed as best as possible, but that's not the reality for a lot of our patients who go elsewhere. So oftentimes they are woefully underdosed in uh, pain medications because these patients have been basically on opioids for a very long time. So they're highly opioid tolerant. And unfortunately it's not unusual for us to hear, oh, nobody can be taking this high amount of opioids, but you know, sickle cell patients are unique in that they are highly opioid tolerant. It's not an addiction issue. It's just, you know, they, they live with pain their whole lives. And so the dose that you and I would get is vastly different than what a sickle cell patient would get in the emergency room. So just putting that awareness out there that there's actually a resource accessible to anybody who practices in the emergency room to know how to sort of go through the checklist of what to do for a patient with sickle cell disease that presents the emergency room.
1: Yeah, and in terms of that initial pain control, like you said, talking to the patient, finding out what their dosing is, I think is really important because while they do usually need a higher level of pain control, that level can be vastly different depending on the patient. Also, I usually try to assume that they have already tried all of their PO meds at home, so now we're talking about stepping this up to IM or IV meds potentially, but In terms of logistics in the emergency department, that can be hard to do to actually get somebody into a room, get them an IV, etc. What do you think about using intranasal fentanyl maybe as a bridge?
3: I know the data of intranasal fentanyl is more in the pediatric population, but I can't think of a reason why we couldn't apply it to the adult population. And so I do think that it's a good bridge. Also, patients with sickle cell disease have very challenging access for peripheral IVs. And sometimes in the emergency room, there might be you know, maybe some level of discomfort with accessing their ports if patients have ports. And so I do think a non-IV way of uh, administering opioids can shorten that duration between time of presentation to administration of opioids.
1: And Brian, talk to me a little bit about what we've tried to do in RED to expedite pain meds for these patients. One of the first things we did was that whenever every patient comes into
2: the emergency department, they're assigned Sort of a triage severity score called the ESI or the Emergency Severity Index. And previously, these patients generally got assigned an ESI level of three. And there are a lot of patients who come through triage who get an ESI of three. Most patients with abdominal pain, um, for example, have an ESI of three. The twos are more rare. Typically, patients with chest pain or more complicated histories, um, we get an ESI of two. And we agreed between our triage nurses and our physician faculty that we would make patients presenting with sickle cell any complications of their sickle cell disease um, an ESI level two. So that doesn't guarantee that they will go straight into a treatment bed, but it does place them at higher priority when a bed becomes available for getting that bed. We have also talked about giving opioids in sort of our sub-waiting area that we call our frontline waiting area. This gets a little bit tricky because there are a lot of hospital policies and nursing policies around the monitoring that is required when we're giving IV opioids, particularly higher, the higher doses of IV opioids that sickle cell patients require. Um, So we're trying to be compliant with those policies while um, still giving patients the pain medications that they need. And that continues to be a challenge in our emergency department. and I think most other emergency departments, but we have increased awareness Um, of the need to treat these patients we are making them ESI level two patients and in a lot of cases the physician in triage is placing the orders for the port to be accessed the labs to be drawn and the initial doses of pain medication to be given so that as soon as they get into that room their nurse can go in and do it without waiting for the treating physician who will be taking care of them for the rest of their ED visit to come in assess them and order additional pain medications.
1: And have we seen how that's played out yet? Have we been able to get these patients back faster with these changes?
2: The preliminary data did look promising that we were starting to shift the needle. Um, We certainly still have a ways to go. Anyone who's walked through our waiting room or our emergency department knows that we're very crowded most days, Um, but I think we are heading in the right direction.
1: And, you know, one of the things that I hear from a lot of our patients as a concern, and I have heard from some doctors as well, is this idea of, and I hate this term, but drug seeking. Um, And we've talked about how these are patients who are on chronic opioids, and so they are going to need some higher doses. But how does this play into your decision making in terms of how to treat these patients?
2: I think it's really important to distinguish between tolerance, dependence, addiction, and drug-seeking. And there are probably rare patients with sickle cell disease, just like there are patients in the general population, who may have addiction or may exhibit sort of drug-seeking behaviors, but the vast majority do not. And I think that we need to kind of put that aside when when these patients are coming into the emergency department. It's complicated a little bit by this fact that medicine in general has seen recent shifts away from opioid use and pain management um, for a lot of conditions. Um, I think sickle cell is different than a lot of other chronic pain conditions, Um, but I think physicians are still very aware of these heightened concerns about the risks of opioids. and We certainly don't want to do anything that risks the safety of our patients, so we do need to be mindful of these concerns, but they shouldn't prevent us from treating sickle cell patients who are having acute sickle cell pain. These patients still need opioid medications. All of the guidelines that I've seen from the American Society of Hematology, the American College of Emergency Physicians still recommend opioid medications as the mainstay of treatment for these patients. And they recommend them in doses that are adequate for treating their pain, which is often probably five to 10 times the dose that I might give an opioid naive patient who's coming in with acute pain. So it is a much higher dose, but it's what these patients need to treat their pain.
3: Yeah, and I think the common misconception of if a patient comes to the emergency room and they ask specifically for a particular opioid or a particular dose, that that's a red flag for drug seeking, I do think that misconception needs to be dismantled uh, specifically for patients with sickle cell disease for all the reasons that Dr. Moma mentioned. As physicians, our first rule is do no harm, right? And so we think that we are the gatekeepers to make sure that we aren't actually causing harm to these patients. But to put it into perspective... Um, There've been several papers published, but I just wanted to highlight one from Dr. Ballas. He has since passed on, but he published a paper. It's It's been a number of years now, I think since 2016, 2017, on the opioid epidemic and sickle cell disease. And it's guilt by association, really, because they looked at um, data from, I don't know, 1999 to 2013. And there were almost 175,000 deaths from opioid-related uh, overdose in the general U.S. population, and only 95. So it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction in people with sickle cell disease. And so even though we say, oh, these patients are taking high doses of opioids, they are significant risk for opioid-related deaths or other complications, that is Actually, not true. There is no data to suggest that opioid related deaths is even a thing in people with sickle cell disease. Yes, they die from other issues, but not opioids and so we do not have to police these patients um, in the emergency room or elsewhere. even you know our usual antenna for red flags should not should not apply in this patient population
1: yeah, excellent point so in RED you know as you mentioned we often have these care plans for some of our patients who regularly seek care in RED and so we have an idea of what their dosing is and oftentimes it's also been agreed upon with their primary hematologist that they sort of have a plan in place But for people who don't have that, if it's a patient that's new to the system or for some of our colleagues in the community who may be seeing these patients who don't have that kind of care plan, what is your go-to opioid and what would be a reasonable dose to start with?
2: Personally, I ask the patient because a lot of these patients know what dose they've gotten before and what dose works. I think Dilaudid is the one that I use most often for these patients. Some of them will say one milligrams. Some of them will say, I need four milligrams. And I usually start with what they tell me unless there's a compelling reason, like something's documented in the chart that that's been an unsafe dose for them in the past, which is extremely rare. Usually these patients know what dose they
1: need. What other treatments can we give? Are fluids helpful or any other medications or non-medication based treatments?
3: I think a really important one is to know that abrupt changes in temperature or ambient temperature is a significant precipitating factor for pain in our patients. And so most patients know that they need to stay warm. We try to, as much as possible, you know, make sure patients are dressed warmly or have warm blankets or some sort of heating device that they can use. A lot of patients report that they actually have relief when they apply um, either a warm blanket or some other sort of warm pillow to the area where they have pain because I do think that that eases some of the vasoconstriction that they're experiencing and can also improve blood flow to the area where they have pain. I'm a huge fan of Ketorolac. I do think that it's really helpful. A lot of my adult patients have significant skeletal complications from sickle cell disease. And I do think that NSAIDs are a good analgesic for nociceptive pain. So unless there's any concern for renal complications or acute kidney injury, I, I also strongly recommend either IM or IV Ketorolac or Toradol. For some patients, they, also benefit from Tylenol. Um, Many of them have Tylenol in their oral opioid regimens. So some of them might also benefit from Tylenol. Uh, Fluids, I would be judicious about fluids especially in the adult side. Some of our patients have um, pulmonary hypertension uh, and also have cardiovascular issues related to their sickle cell disease. And so I would be careful about giving a bolus of fluids, but you could do maintenance fluids. If a patient's able to drink, um, I would probably recommend an oral route for hydration. Dehydration is a big trigger for pain episodes as well. But if you're doing IV, then uh, maybe like a maintenance fluid would be better than just a bolus.
2: Yeah, I agree. If they have not taken um, acetaminophen or an NSAID at home recently, I tend to give those um, at the outset, in part also because they take a little bit longer to work when they're oral medications. Um, and they are things that we can easily give in our frontline waiting area because um, the nurses are a little bit more comfortable giving those in the waiting area. The other thing that I'll sometimes do if the pain is in a localized area is I'll try a lidocaine patch And then a lot of patients are taking hydroxyurea at home, but if they have that as part of their care plan, we'll get that started in the emergency department as well to make sure we keep up with whatever medications they're taking at home that we don't forget to order those once they come into the emergency department.
1: And sometimes I see, you know, with the high levels of opioids that we're giving these patients that they also have a lot of side effects like itching. So I see sometimes Benadryl or another antihistamine added to the regimen to try to combat that. Yeah, that's right. So one of the things that then becomes a challenge with these patients, too, is deciding what their disposition is going to be. So is this a patient that's going to be able to go home? Is this someone who requires admission to the hospital? How do you guys make those decisions?
2: I think it depends, first of all, what they're coming into the emergency department for and what their ED workup shows. So if they have something like acute chest syndrome or pneumonia or another more serious complication of their sickle cell disease they usually need to be admitted for further care. If a patient has an acute pain crisis, then the disposition is more up in the air and it's usually a joint decision with the patient. When I go into the room for the first time, I usually ask the patient, do you feel like this is something that we can turn around with three or four doses of IV opioids in the emergency department? Or do you feel like you're at a point where you need to be admitted to get this under control? Because sometimes these patients have already been to the infusion center the day before or the two days before, and they're now coming back into the emergency department because They've gotten eight doses of IV opioids the last two days in the infusion center, and it's not controlling their pain. And sometimes patients will say, you know, no, I think I really want to try to go home today. I just need a couple doses to kind of get this under control. I think I'm catching it early and I want to try to go home. Either way, I will usually kind of talk with the patients and we'll make a plan together. Usually that plan is that we'll follow their care plan. We'll give them three doses of IV opioids. It should be about two to three hours in the emergency department. And if their pain isn't controlled at that point, then we'll talk about bringing them in for additional pain control. Sometimes we'll do a fourth or a fifth dose if they really want to try to get their pain under control and go home. But patients are usually very accurate at predicting whether they'll need admission or not when it's sort of a, an uncomplicated acute pain crisis without any of the other organs involved.
3: Yeah, I I would fully agree. And I think maybe the opposite is also true, where if a patient wasn't able to get into infusion for pain management, um, they went to the emergency room as their last resort. The emergency room is really good about reaching out to us, um, the sickle cell outpatient team. And if we're able to hopefully see the patient in clinic or accommodate them in the infusion room in the next day or two, that might also play a role in their disposition. And I should highlight here that we are very privileged
1: to have both an infusion center and a sickle cell team that are familiar with a lot of these patients and can kind of guide our care. That's not always true in the community. So it may be a little bit different there. But I agree with you. I think in general, when I have conversations with these patients, they can tell me pretty early on whether they feel that this is something they're going to need to be admitted for or whether they feel like they could go home. What are some ways that you think an emergency department can improve care for these sickle cell patients overall?
2: Personally, I think the individual care plans are very helpful in the emergency department. Um, They're created with input from the outpatient hematologist who often has been following them for years and understands their pain management needs. And it puts everyone, the outpatient hematologist, the patient, the nurses, the physicians on the same page. From the beginning of the encounter and it really takes the guesswork out of the physician guessing the right dose the patient feeling like they're not being treated adequately if the dose is too low it just takes all of that guesswork and risk for miscommunication out because everybody's on the same page from the beginning sometimes i've also had it decrease the time for the the patient to get the pain medication because the nurses can see the care plan so they are comfortable administering the higher doses of opioids that they might otherwise need to do a double check on. And then the other thing I think that's big that I talked about earlier was when our waiting room is crowded, prioritizing these patients for rooms or finding a way to initiate treatment while they're waiting is also very important in getting them that not just, I mean, yes, the guidelines talk about the first dose, but often one dose is not enough to control these patients' pain. So it's not just the first dose, it's the second dose and the third dose and the fourth dose, because If you give the first dose and it completely wears off before you give the second dose, you haven't really made forward progress.
3: I think that language is also really important. So many patients have said, you know, people make comments about us in the emergency room, like, why are we there? Why are we there again? Uh, You know, they use derogatory terms of frequent flyer, pain seeker, drug seeker, that kind of thing. And patients hear this. So, you know, one thing that I hear over and over again in my patients, um, which really it's heartbreaking to hear is that before they go to the emergency room, they make sure, take a shower, dress their very best so that they are not immediately dismissed. And I can't imagine having excruciating pain, but still having the wherewithal to, you know, get dressed, put on makeup or, you know, whatever, and go to the emergency room looking my best so I won't be dismissed. I can't imagine what that must be like. So I do think the language or even the approach or just displaying empathy, I do think that that would make a huge difference um, for the patient experience as well.
1: Yeah, I think that is so, so important. And, you know, when we talk about these patients, these are patients who have been dealing with this for their entire life. And we've talked before on this podcast about trauma-informed care. These patients have probably experienced various forms of trauma multiple times throughout their life dealing with their sickle cell crises. And so I think keeping that in mind, checking our own bias, making sure that we are being compassionate with these patients, I think that's extremely important. Another thing that I think has been helpful at Davis specifically is leaning into the EMR. So in addition to having the patient's care plan right there in their snapshot, we also have a sickle cell order set. And so some of those things that you mentioned that are important to get, it's kind of a one click. I can click on there and it's going to already order my CBC, my retic count. It's going to give me options for opioid pain control. And I think that that is really helpful into just kind of streamlining that process of getting them care. Any final thoughts from you guys in terms of care for these more straightforward vaso occlusive episodes?
3: I really like the idea or incorporation of continuing the patient's disease modifying therapy in the emergency room and or the hospital. I do think that's very important because even though they're coming in, let's say with an acute uncomplicated crisis. You know, their underlying sickle cell disease is still pretty active, right? And so I like the idea that, you know, their hydroxyurea doesn't fall off the cliff or any of the other medications that they're taking don't get basically forgotten while their acute care is being uh, implemented. Um, So I really like that idea. I also wanted to just plug in that another thing that we do, if there was a way for the electronic medical record to alert, I I know this has been done in other institutions, but just to alert the sickle cell care team. That, hey, your patient's in the emergency room or your patients been hospitalized. Uh, what we do as a team is we actually go through um, every day who's in the hospital, who's in the emergency. We're like, we're looking for our patients because we know they're probably out there, right? Uh, but if there was a way to build into the EMR that we're automatically notified that our patients are in the emergency room or they are admitted, I do think that would also help streamline the care. Cause then we can directly contact the team that's taking care of them and, and give them our perspective since we know these patients and we Known and taken care of them for a long time. That's a great
1: point. And Bryn, can I just ask you to give us maybe a little bit of advice on how you might start a sickle cell working group at your institution if that doesn't exist? So I think
2: it's really important when we're forming a multidisciplinary team that it's truly multidisciplinary. So we need everyone who takes care of patients with sickle cell disease from the outpatient setting through the emergency department into the inpatient setting. So Here at UC Davis, that was our outpatient adult and pediatric hematologists, um, our emergency department, both adult and pediatric physicians, as well as our nurses, and then those who admit patients into the inpatient setting, so adult and pediatric hospitalists. And we really want to get everyone on the same page because the outpatient hematologist can make a beautiful care plan, but if it's not followed and implemented when they come into the emergency department in the inpatient setting it's really kind of worthless. So we want to get everyone on board. And there have been times where we've had to tweak care plans. One example is getting a PCA on arrival, and it just takes some time, especially in the emergency department to get a PCA set up. So we've had to adjust those plans to give some IV pushes of medications while we wait for the PCA to come. So just those little logistics, making sure that we have a care plan that works for everyone involved, that everyone is agreeable and able to follow.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is such a complex disease process with so many different manifestations, and that collaborative approach is really key. Thank you guys so much for discussing this, and we'll be back to talk some more about some of the other complications of sickle cell disease.
2: Pulse check.
0: Sickle cell is not just a blood disease, it is the disease of wherever the blood goes. That's all the organs, guys, and definitely an emergency medicine issue. Vaso-occlusive episodes or pain crises are an emergency. The recommendation is 60 minutes from the time the patient walks in the door to administration of analgesia. Triage accordingly. Take them at their word. Treat accordingly. Obtain a CBC to look at neutrophils for infection, chemoglobin for anemia, and importantly, get a reticulocyte count. If the retic count is low, that is concerning that the body is not accounting for hemolysis. Patients with sickle cell live in pain. Many are opioid tolerant. It may take more meds than you expect to improve the pain. The vast majority of patients are not drug-seeking, but are opioid tolerant. Consider a multidisciplinary approach to create pain plans that can be instituted when these patients arrive to streamline and homogenize care. If you don't have a care plan in place yet, ask the patient what meds and doses work best for them. Many times they know. Try ketorolac. Consider warm blankets. Disposition should be geared towards the patient's needs and desires. Bias is real. Check it at the door use care plans,
1: algorithms, and a humble approach. What Dr. Adesina said about sickle cell being a disease of wherever the blood goes really resonated with me. It's a good reminder of the severity and complications of this disease. You know, Sarah,
0: I like the discussion about the low reticulocytes being a concerning clue because, you know, I've
1: always ordered a retic count, but now it's good to know why. <laughs> yeah, So, and we've got more to come on this topic in the next couple episodes.
0: So in the meantime, you can find us at EM Pulse Podcast. If you learned something,
1: please share this episode with a colleague and spread the word. And thanks to the UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine for working to improve care for this important patient population.
0: And thanks to OM Productions for editing out all the dogs in the background.
1: <laughs> Until next time, stay curious, stay inspired, and stay tuned.